0: Welcome to the Central Seminary Podcast. Thanks for joining us today as we discuss biblical and theological issues relating to life and ministry. This podcast is a ministry of Central Baptist Theological Seminary in Plymouth, Minnesota. To learn more about Central Seminary, visit our website at www.centralseminary.edu. My name is Jared, and I'll be your host. Well, here we are again on the Central Seminary Podcast. Thanks for taking time to listen today. Today we have Dr. Preston Mays with us. Dr. Mays, welcome.
1: Thank you. Very glad to be here.
0: It's been a little while since you've been on, but we're excited to have you and you're going to make up for it, right? Because we're going to have you on a couple times.
1: I would certainly hope so. Okay. certainly hope so.
0: So, before we introduce our topic, let's just do some preliminary stuff that we usually like to ask. Anything that you're reading that you want to share with us?
1: You know, I've kind of taken a little hiatus from reading large books. I've got a few things I'm working through, but we're working on... The seminary is producing a counseling textbook, and I've been given a chapter in that. So, it, it is... Been something I've been doing a lot of research for. You know, for example, I'll do some some word studies. It's I, I've got the doctrine of sin as it's relevant to the counselor. Okay. Um, so just to dive into that, you know, just the, it, honestly, it's been kind of tricky to write that because you can turn to systematic theology texts and you can find eighty or ninety pages sometimes <laughs> on the doctrine of sin. Well, I don't have eighty or ninety pages, um, and I got to give something useful to the counselor. So kind of what I did was I built it around just kind of a a snippet of um, something that I thought was more relevant for a counselor. Samuel confronting Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15 is an interesting one because, in a sense, it's not really a counseling scenario, but you've got somebody talking with somebody else about their sin, and there's some give and take in it. So that's been a lot of fun for me to to work through that in, in some detail.
0: Okay. Well, we'll look forward to that coming out sometime probably Next year or two, maybe. I don't. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah, that'll be good. Well, today we're going to talk about the Book of Job, and this is going to be a little different. Maybe that we're not doing an overview of the book necessarily. We have some topics. I think we have four topics that we're going to extract from the book and see what Job has to teach us about these topics. And just to give a little history, this comes off of you teaching a block course here. Uh, fairly recently, on the Book of Job, and then doing a thirteen week uh, Wednesday night study on the Book of Job. And so we're condensing that down even further mm-hmm. into some episodes, some key uh, what would you call them theological or biblical theology yeah. from Job? Yeah, we will kind
1: of it's kind of a biblical theology of Job. We'll kind of roughly loosely trace the storyline of job and and kind of it's like to think of it. Jo- join Job on this journey of trying to figure out why this is all happening to him. Okay. On um, his suffering.
0: All right. So we're we're along. We're following. We're along for the ride.
1: Mm-hmm. Correct.
0: Before uh, we talk about our topic today, which is good and evil in Job, I'm curious, how did Job first begin to be a an area of study? Uh, for you an area of interest?
1: Well, honestly, it was about 20 years ago. One of my colleagues at the time came to me and said, I was the Old Testament, you know, teacher um, where I was. And he said to me, would you be interested in teaching the book of Job? I think that the Old Testament guy ought to be the one teaching the book of Job. And, you know, I, I often wondered why he said that. can't ask him now. He's with the Lord. Uh, maybe he just didn't want to teach the class anymore. <laughs> I don't know. But from that point, I, I, I started getting into the book. And it was a wonderful opportunity because it's one thing that you, people don't know very much about. And I didn't know anything about it either. I think most people know about chapters 1 and 2 and chapters 42. But what is happening in the middle of that is pretty much a mystery. It's mm. poetry, which is hard anyway, and it just, it's tricky. Sometimes yeah. it's hard to figure out what the men are even talking about. So um, that was how it it started. But the, the the longer I've been at it, the more I've fallen in love with it. And its It's been kind of a favorite um, through the years. Um, so I'm thankful for the opportunity. So that's how I got started.
0: Okay. <laughs> Uh, So as I mentioned today, the area we're focusing on is good and evil in Job. And so we're not going to necessarily do a walk through the entire book, but maybe you could set the stage a little bit for us for some of the items we're going to talk about today. Give enough of the story to get where where we want to go with this idea of good and evil in Job.
1: Yeah, I think it's important to to have right up front something clear in our minds um, about what we are talking about and what we are not talking about. Um, There's a lot of suffering in the world, and we're not talking about suffering that is a result of personal sins. Um, Often we do get what we deserve, and sometimes that's very short-term. Sometimes we seem to get away with something for a long time, but it's in the long term that the the problems become evident. So, for example, let's take alcohol use. Well, what are some of the short-term things that you might do that would the obvious problems you created for yourself. Uh, You know, you go out and you get in an accident because you were intoxicated. And obviously people get start a drink or two at most will control you, usually a drink, if you're drinking on an empty stomach. So that would be one thing. Um, Sometimes it loosens inhibitions. People will do unwise things under the influence. Um, That would be a more near term. But even in the long term, there are... Effects. I mean, alcohol is statistically correlated with many t- types of cancer. Um, it is statistically correlated with cognitive decline. Um, that's a longer-term kind of thing. But I've you know, I've seen this a study that noted how y- your ability to reason, to to do mental calculations, that would be semantic reasoning, knowing what words mean, being able to find the word, um, your spatial orientation. Even a one to two drink a day kind of habit, you'll be five years ahead of where somebody who didn't drink was. In other words, if you're 75, you'll have the mental capacity of the average 80-year-old. And um, so, you know, those things are obvious. So we're not talking about that um, per se, nor are we talking about things where a person was originally a totally innocent sufferer. And yet, then they did something sinful to deal with it. Um, The the kind, you know, maybe a a prototypical situation. Somebody has been through a very hard time. Um, They've been abused. They're a victim. It's a horrible thing. It creates such pain in the life. How do you deal with all that pain? Often people turn to alcohol in that case. In which case, as a counselor, you might have two problems. Um, the person may not have sought out out any counseling until the thing blew up in their face. Mm -hmm. And so now you've got the initial issue to deal with while you're also trying to deal with whatever other effects. And, of course, there's other things people might do that that the pain would be that bad to drive them to to, to those extremes. So in a sense, Job will eventually be an example of that. But we're going to have to see the whole story and how that develops. He's got his own little version of trying to meet his own needs when God won't, or when he thinks God won't. Mm. Um, What we are talking about is maybe more suffering in general, or what we would consider to be undeserved suffering, when there's no obvious link to your behavior, okay? Um, And it's very clear that that's, you know, the case with Job. He's done nothing to deserve this. Everything about that description of him in chapters 1 and 2, this man is righteous. Mm. Um, He's called one who is blameless and upright. No, nothing you can look at in his life and see any deficiency. He's one who fears God. So his heart attitudes are right as well. He does respect the Lord. We even see him in chapter one taking family leadership very seriously you know and at that point in history, um, a family would have its you know the father would do the priestly kind of activity, and job is sacrificing on behalf of all of his children. He's doing it not because he knows there's anything wrong. he's just worried that they might have cursed God only in their hearts. so he thinks that one's righteousness must extend to that level, and he won't let himself get away with bad thoughts. It is truly amazing. God himself even finally says there's nobody like him mm. and who fears God and has nothing to do with evil. And he's blameless and upright. So we know that that's true of, of Job. But Job does experience what we would call all kinds of undeserved suffering. If you think about what might happen to a person in our world, everything, everything there happened to Job. You know, oftentimes sometimes people are um, impacted by acts of nature. Hurricanes strike randomly. Tornadoes. Tornadoes are particularly devastating. And it's, it, we've probably all seen the pictures how a tornado wins its way through a town. One street is the houses are turned into matchsticks. Piles of bricks. The next block over. A few shingles blew off a house or something. Everything is pretty much intact. Um, well, if you're the one who's been affected by that, an act of nature raises that question for you. In Job's case, fire from God falls from heaven, um, consuming some of, his, some of his cattle, or actually, um, yeah, some of his cattle, and uh, then a great wind caused his house to collapse. Um, was he a victim of theft? Yeah, he was. The Sabaeans and the Chaldeans stole his donkeys and his camels. And, of course, he had guarded them. He had his servants there with them. didn't matter. They got killed too. Um, how about random disease? You know, some people, have you ever asked, why do some people suffer these horrible, debilitating diseases? Mm-hmm. Childhood cancers. Just doesn't seem right. Yeah. You know, the person has their whole lives in front of them. And then this has happened. Or even if you don't have that, how about type 1 diabetes? Or maybe somebody who lives in Africa, from what I've been told, the likelihood of them getting malaria is pretty close to 100%. Um, we don't get that here. It, you know it's, it's suffering, and all this against the backdrop of other types of suffering that happen. Um, if you're in a country that has been devastated by senseless wars where – Two power hungry factions, neither of which probably has the moral high side, is anybody that we'd really want to, we'd really think has the moral high ground. That creates suffering for those who are not going to benefit from any change in power. It's just going to be a different set of oppressors. So, all of those kinds of things um, are are what we are talking about um, in the book. Those kinds of suffering for which it's just random suffering.
0: Mm hmm so we have their suffering for you know the results of your sin mm-hmm. they're suffering for maybe you've lived a fairly righteous life and you you know you commit a sin and there's consequences for that uh, we're, we're not talking about that you've labeled it and I don't know if it's original with you undeserved suffering mm-hmm. uh, I'm curious is that uh, that contested at all in the commentaries and those who deal with Job, whether he was truly a righteous man, has has that been an issue of conflict? Or is that pretty well accepted?
1: I, I think it's pretty much accepted that he is a righteous man. Um, just the way he's described in chapter 1, um, in and of itself, um, is makes it pretty clear. It's rare for a biblical character to be Described in such stark terms. It, the redundancy in there telling you that this man is righteous. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really right down to every detail. Later on in chapter 31, when he's making his oath of innocence, he systematically, uh, under oath, affirms that he's not committed all of these sins. Yeah. Um, and he, honestly, what he... Affirms that he is innocent of. Um, you could take that list and pretty much find places in the Mosaic Law where he he's a, a law-abiding citizen in every sense of the word. Not that he's an Israelite, but he knows what um, what God requires of people.
0: Okay, and so we we could almost maybe compare him to David being called a man after God's own heart. Th- this was a righteous guy. This yeah. was someone who uh, fulfilled the requirements of the law, kept the commandments best he could, mm-hmm. uh, performed the sacrifices, mm-hmm. um, and, and he's, he's suffering yeah. unexpectedly, uh, arguably undeservedly. At least there's nothing that we're told that is linked to that. And so uh, we, we have this, this suffering with Job, and we, we kind of get to see a little bit behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. We, we don't get this in our life, so it would be great if we kind of could see this interplay. And it's not really even a very common thing in Scripture that we see this interplay between God and Satan, but we get to see this. We know Satan is behind mm-hmm. at some level. He's behind the suffering of Job. What do we learn about Satan and some of his tactics from this book?
1: Well, he's um, he's the kind of person, yeah, we do learn a lot about his evil and You can't help but read through that and think it through without really disliking him, (laughs) realizing this is the enemy and he hates you because he hates God. The only way he can get to God is in his thinking is through us. Um, I think it starts, he puts the worst possible spin on Job's righteousness. Um, He says, ah, he's just serving you because you've, uh, he wants your stuff. Mm. You've blessed him abundantly. And you know, it's a, a, uh, stick and carrot kind of mentality, but take away everything he has and he'll curse you to your face openly. Um, which again, that's very different. If you look back in chapter one, Job had sacrificed for his children. Why? Because he was afraid his children had cursed God only in their hearts mm. that they hadn't even verbalized it. Um, so he's putting the worst possible spin. In. And of course, he's wrong about that. But he's he's also devious. Um, you know, not even honorable enough, I suppose, to show his face. If you look about all he does to Job, is there any way you could directly trace it back to the activity of Satan? No. It looks like random acts of God, Um, you know, the the weather events. It looks like human beings have sinned against Job, Um, even the sicknesses. I mean, who do you attribute that to? Um, You know, people get sick all the time, not as sick as Job, not as ill as job but he's very devious and so he's he's also very cruel when you think about it the goal is to get job to curse god he does literally everything he could possibly do to achieve that objective there's no mercy in it whatsoever Mm -hmm. he does it all um I view him as a much, much, much worse version of the, the older brother who likes to taunt his other younger brother. <laughs> Anybody who has kids understands this. The older brother wants to do it in a sneaky way, and at such point as the younger brother just can't stand it anymore and reacts, that's the point at which the parents will step in and do something about it. And of course, who gets in trouble in those scenarios? Um, well, it's the younger brother, even though he's much less to be at, at fault. Now, of course, most parents figure out very quickly, this is the way it works. And so <laughs> they know if the younger one's reacting, maybe there's more than meets the eye here. But yeah. Satan's a much worse version of that. Um, and, and so again, you, you do at the end of the day, on some level, have to blame him. Remember one author, and, and that's, that, that should be kept in, in mind here, um, as one author noted, he had met many people through the years who had been angry at God for their suffering. You know, God they felt God had let them down. But he's never met anybody who was angry at Satan for what Satan had did to them or had done to them. And uh, yeah, so this is Satan's action. He is the one who pulls all the strings here. And so we do learn a lot about that, and probably that is the kind of thing that happens to us all the time in other different sorts of ways.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting interesting perspective about people being mad at God and yeah. not being mad at Satan. Well,
1: because I, I think, you know, even um, Ephesians talks about how we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. There's a spiritual war going on, and, and I don't see it. It's behind the scenes. Um, I'm not sure that, Satan directly has ever tempted me to do anything, uh, but there are human beings that um, are considered you know they wouldn't consider themselves allies of Satan, but they they really are very much unwitting allies of Satan who will tempt us to sin, who will be used to encourage us to sin in that respect they're 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 kind of similar to 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 the devil in that case, but
0: yeah. So we, we see a clear picture of Satan here and his, his working here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm curious your thoughts. Uh, in our, and I'm speaking as an American and not everyone who listens to this is from America, but mm-hmm. we, in our world today, we maybe aren't as in tune with the spirit world or we don't like to think of, you know, like you said, Ephesians 6, spiritual battle, wrestling fle- out against flesh and blood. Do you think the Old Testament Hebrew mind was more uh, aware of that than we might tend to be?
1: Maybe somewhat. I think the ancient world was much more superstitious regarding the spiritual world. Uh, for example, the the pagan gods were thought to be very real in everybody's thinking. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> so I think there's a tendency there. And certainly you have biblical uh, stories where... Angels finger, figure at least somewhat proper, prop, uh, prominently, and Daniel, for example, is is, is one example. Uh, of course, there's not a lot said about angels. The problem with the doctrine of angelology is that it, it, it's never developed kind of, or, or demonology, it's never developed systematically. Mm. They're only introduced when something else is happening and they're relevant to the story. Um, I think there was an understanding of this, uh, yes, and the biblical evidence would bear it out.
0: Okay. So we see Satan, and Satan is kind of the um, the guy who's bringing all this stuff against Job. But what is what does that what does that do with God's involvement? Does Satan's involvement exonerate God in any way?
1: Yeah, and that that's where the that's where the the core issue is because I, I would like to think that maybe it does, but um, it really doesn't. For one thing, we all know God is sovereign. Um, and he could have chosen to prevent Satan's actions, but he didn't. And almost anybody who suffers is going to ask the question, why did God do this to mm-hmm. me? Now, so they're going to blame God. Now, that's not really what we should be doing based on Job here, but e- even so, the way the story unfolds, God is the ultimate kind of responsible party. Um Again, when you think about it, Job, God is the one who raises the issue of Job with Satan to begin with. It's not like Satan is sneaking around doing something without God's knowledge. He can't act without permission. And so once God gives that permission, he puts minimal limits on what Satan cannot do. First, you can't touch his body. He takes everything else, though, um, except his wife, Job's wife, um, and he leaves her for a purpose— um, because she's going to encourage him to curse God and die. Mm. It's obvious that if he didn't feel that he could use her for that purpose, she would have died too. Um, and then when, it, when he is allowed to take Job's health, he gives him something that's horrific, but is obviously not going to kill him. Mm-hmm. But it's horrific. And man, you get little snippets of the description here and there in the book. It, it was awful. Um, I think we'll probably talk about that some leading into the discussion next time mm-hmm. uh, to, to really, but I, although I'm sure we can, un, we would not, we would guess. Yeah, it was pretty excruciating. It, it really was. Um, so all of that seems unfair to us. We feel that somebody like Job, who is as righteous as he is, shouldn't he be given a little bit of a break? Doesn't mm-hmm. God kind of owe him something? Mm-hmm. And, This is a temptation we all face, I think. I've talked to people who have gone through significant amounts of suffering who would have given you the right textbook answer. They would have said, yes, even good people can suffer. But what happens when the suffering occurs to you and you understand just how bad this really is? Most of us don't until we've actually been there. Mm. Um, To to see the, the, the raw pain of the emotions that just won't go away. It's so pervasive, you know, if it's taken hold and and you're miserable, and you'd do anything for some relief, even a moment of relief, and you just can't find it. Um, So we feel, you know, when you're in that kind of situation, um, all of a sudden you do start to think, yeah, God, you should have treated me differently. Mm. And the temptation is if that's the way you're going to treat me then, yeah, Where it goes from there could be um, any different direction. So that's kind of what Job is going to end up doing to a degree, but we all would do that as well. I think beyond those implications of of God's control, God Himself takes direct responsibility (laughs) for what's happening to Job Mm -hmm. Um, after the first round. Um, God says to Satan that Job holds fast his integrity, though you incited me against him without cause. So, interesting little Hebrew construction there. The, The subject is Satan. But the verb, the object would be involved in that action as kind of a secondary actor. So that's the the verb, and I would interpret it that way there. So, Satan is the main actor, but God was involved, mm. and God says, "Yeah, if I hadn't, if I hadn't allowed it, none of it would have happened." So that brings us right back to the problem of God: How can you allow this? Um, um, and again, there's never, there's never a thought in the book as well, to blame it all on Satan and leave it at that. Mm-hmm. All of the issues are with God, and God is the one who ultimately um, <clears throat> will answer Job. God is the one who will ultimately restore Job. Um, and God does, in his speech with Job, talk much about how he manages um, the, the universe, really, but more specifically the human race. Yeah. So it, that is the answer that we need to come up with. Um, so no, it doesn't. We, <laughs> we need to understand Satan. We need to recognize, when I sin, ooh, look at who I'm following and look at what his intentions are. But at the same time realize, okay, that's I can't just blame this on Satan. And I certainly can't blame it on Satan ultimately with somebody who's suffering and wants an answer to this question.
0: Yeah, and and this, you know, it really goes against how we like to Mm -hmm. think or expect that life ought to go. You know, Mm -hmm. we like to, you know, almost like a a chip in, chip out. You know, Mm -hmm. we we are good, and so life goes well. And we, you know, do what we're supposed to do. We obey the laws, obey the rules, and everything's going to work out, almost like in a a Proverbs-type you know, mentality. And sometimes we, we don't have a category for when it doesn't go that way. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, we'll get into in the future. That's kind of where we see some of his friends going. Well, you must have done something.
1: Exactly. They do. And and realistically, we do fall into the same pattern of thinking. If you look at Job, his initial response is to say the right thing in chapter two. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the Lord gave, the Lord take the way, blessed be the name of the Lord. He even rebukes his wife um, when she tries to encourage him to curse God and die. But um, when we get to the, and I think that's that's our, if we have some Christian maturity, some Christian background, I think that's probably going to be our usual response. We'll kind of default to the theology that we know, and we'll say the right thing. But what happens when the pain doesn't go away and the situation isn't getting any better? I think we'll then be at the same point Job Um, was that? If you want to read, I've nominated Job 3 as probably the most depressing chapter in the Bible (laughs) for this reason. The first 19 or 20 verses are are, are simply Job wishing he were dead Mm. in a systematic way. I wish I had never been conceived of and brought into the universe. But from there, but he was. He knows he was conceived, and then he wishes, well, I wish my parents had I'd been either stillborn, or I wasn't stillborn, but maybe they would have abandoned me. I would have preferred that. And it's just bad enough for Job. But as, as often happens, when you're suffering, you then become more sensitized to other people's suffering. You can truly empathize. And so Job seems to think or seems to see, wow, I know what I'm experiencing, and now I know there are other people experiencing the same thing. So he ends up in chapter three, asking, "Well, why is life given to me, given to those people just like me, who suffer unbearably, um, and, and we can end up wishing we were never born?" Sadly, some people will commit suicide. Uh, most of them will will hold in the hang in there, but they'll end up wanting nothing to do with God. They'll answer the question. Either God, they'll say either God doesn't exist, or if he does exist, I don't want that version of him, so I'm just going to live life on my own.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So how does the book of Job contradict our modern way of thinking when it comes to the existence of evil? We talked about that a little bit, but in, in your notes you have some uh, truths what you talk about that, that we have trouble to reconcile yeah. in our human thinking. Can you talk yeah. with us about that?
1: Sure, I mean, I think everybody who's who's aware of Christian theology would agree with these things without hesitation. God is good. Number two, God is all-powerful. And number three, evil exists in the universe. It's easy for me to see how any two of those can be true. If God mm-hmm. is good and all-powerful, then shouldn't evil not exist? Shouldn't he use his power to eradicate all evil? Well, clearly we know evil exists. Yeah. Um, so we can't we can't ignore number 3 that evil exists but you know the fact that evil exists i can see how evil could exist with a good god it might be that he's just not powerful enough to do anything about it or to, to win the fight it might be the universe is some sort of dualistic kind of thing with the divine realm locked in this eternal struggle between good and evil and we hope the good will win out but we have no guarantees there uh, that it actually will. Um, of course, if God is all powerful and evil does exist, He might just be kind of sinister, um, treating us like some sort of rats in the laboratory mm. to be poked at to see what we would do. You know, the the, the unethical experiments <laughs> um, being run on people that. that you know, every once in a while you'll, hear a, you'll read a newspaper article or a podcast talking through some experiment that was done in the past, and you just kind of cringe it's some of the ethics of some of what was done. Um, so given that conundrum, and we all intuitively, I think, sense that, even if you're not well-steeped in Christian theology, I think you have an innate sense of what a god should be like And it should be that all three of those things mesh. The good God, who's all-powerful, doesn't allow any evil to exist. And um, historically, there's a lot of people who stumble over that idea. Um, Charles Darwin was one. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'll I'll read a quote from, I think it's one of his diaries here. He says, I cannot see. And here's why he justifies his thinking. He says, I cannot see as plainly as others do, and as I should wish to do, evidence of design and beneficence on all sides. In other words, evidence of God's goodness. There seems to me too much misery in the world. I cannot persuade myself that a beneficent and omnipotent, beneficent good and omnipotent, all-powerful God would have designed, designedly created the uh, ichneumonidae with the express intention of their feeding within the living bodies of caterpillars. If you think about that for a second, does cause the the stomach to turn a bit, or that a cat should play with mice? Okay, another one that some of our you know, some people listening to the podcast will probably be familiar with is the noted textual critic Bart Ehrman. Now he's very liberal in his theological outlook, and most people and, and does not believe in the inerrancy on any level of the New Testament or Scripture, and we might think that he. He he got tripped up on just the idea that the Bible makes errors, but that's not really what happened. In his book God's Problem, he explains why he apostatized, uh, po- apostatized, and it was over this question. He says very plainly, "This is the reason I lost my faith. I just um, it, I, I questioned the whole thing because of human suffering." Um, one of my, I wouldn't say it's my favorite example, but it's it's the most shocking example i guess is the british actor stephen fry who's a noted um atheist and he was asked a few years ago during an interview by somebody what what would happen what would you what would you say to god after death if you died and you discovered it's all true there really is a god and what the christians say about him is really right and um I, I, it always makes me cringe a little bit to read through this because it, it truly is so blasphemous, and yet it's the, what he's thinking. He's um, he's making the case for us. I'd say bone cancer, bone cancer in children. What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world where, it, to which there is such misery, that is not our fault. For I continued. It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-spirited, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say. Mm. And he would, you know, there, there are good answers to all of those questions. Um, just to kind of preview, the fact that evil exists right now certainly doesn't mean that God is doing nothing about it. And though, though, you know, from a Christian perspective, to jump ahead, um, I think we do have to keep in mind our Christology um, and how deep the suffering of Jesus was. He was truly the only person that didn't get what he deserved. Um, Though I may not have done something to deserve being caught in this hurricane and having lost all my property and maybe somebody else. I am a sinner, and though I shouldn't be blamed for that hurricane, this is what happens when you sin. Things get hard in a lot of complicated, messy ways. Um, The reality of it is God has been extremely patient. I can't believe he's put up with us for as long as he has. Mm -hmm. When you think about how impatient we are when somebody has wronged us. So considering what Christ suffered and the picture of his passion both in the Gospels and the book of Psalms, as you read through there. Uh, you know, Jesus does talk about how the Psalms speak of him, and I think largely it's that suffering. So, so that's, um, <clears throat> there are good answers to that. But um, in, in Fry's case, he continues, he says, if I died and it was Pluto, Hades, and if it was the 12 Greek gods, then I would have more truck with it because the Greeks didn't pretend to not be human in their appetites. In their capriciousness and in their unreasonableness. They didn't present themselves as being all-seeing, all-wise, all-kind, all-beneficent, because the God that created the universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac, utter maniac, totally selfish. We have to spend our life on our knees thanking him. What kind of God would do that? And then he concludes, doing away with belief in God makes life simpler, purer, cleaner, more worth living, in my opinion. Now, the truth is, if the, the divine realm really were like that, the world would be chaotic. Satan is the one who would be pulling the strings. Totally unhindered, unhindered and unfettered. What do you think it would like be like? It's hard to say for sure, but I doubt we would describe it as simpler pure and cleaner it would be messy with everybody selfishly eventually at each other's throats as you know as the book of genesis says you know when god came down to destroy uh, the pre-flood world the whole earth was filled with violence yeah so that's what we get but it illustrates that's the problem and you can. This problem gets repeated in people's lives, even if they're not suffering. Eventually, they ask the question because they realize most of us want people to be happy. We feel life should be happy and good, and when it's not, we feel somebody has been wronged for that. So th- there needs to be an answer um, to this.
0: Yep, and and Job partially answers that but we're not necessarily going to get to it today because we want to mm-hmm. go on the journey. Why is, why is the journey so important?
1: Yeah, the journey is important because Job, well, it's kind of hard to, to trace a, a very, very consistent line of thinking in Job about God and his relationship to its evil, to evil, because he had this theology that he thought worked, And now he discovers it doesn't work. Mm. And he doesn't know what is going to replace that. Um, So it it really does become a theological struggle for him as well. Um, Now, he doesn't turn to paganism, that would be the Stephen Fry answer, or the ancient Near Eastern pagan religions Mm -hmm. such as you have in Egypt or in Mesopotamia or even in Greece or Rome with this divine pantheon of gods. Um, that actually does explain humanity quite well. Um, you know, if you've ever read much of the stories of of the ancient gods, it's a very interesting read because they're portrayed like what I would call a family of very naughty superheroes <laughs> who are always jockeying for power. Now, they're not omnipotent, but they have certain types of powers. Mm-hmm and they're always kind of in conflict with each other. And that conflict is supposed to be reflected in in the in the way the the world operates. And you see that in in um, in scripture occasionally. There's one battle against I believe it's the Aramaeans. I believe so. Where Israel wins the battle and the first recourse of the air to explain that as well. Their gods are the gods of the, the hills. Mm. We tried to fight them in the hills and their gods are more powerful there. Well, next time we'll fight them on the plane. Mm. And so that's what they do. They engage the battle on the plane and Israel wins the battle at that point as well. So the gods are, they have power over a realm, but there's this jockeying for position. So yeah. it, it's not, I don't know that I would say it is somewhat dualistic maybe, but it's more about all these gods over a certain realm that, um, And, of course, Job never turns to that answer, but he still has to come up with an answer to make sense of this all from within a monotheistic perspective. And I think everybody is on that journey one way or the other. You're going to turn to the agnostic atheist answer, or you're going to start to reconceptualize, reconceptualize God in your thinking and view him in certain ways. You might still think that he okay, maybe he exists, but I just don't want anything to do with him. Um, kind of a, a refusal to think about it much. I'll just live out the rest of my life. I don't want anything to do with him if that's what he's going to do to me. So that theological struggle we need to understand. And at the end of the, at the end of it all, job does do one thing that was a problem and that he misrepresented God. The implications of it were such. And um, so we need to understand that so we don't do the same thing, misrepresent God.
0: Okay. Um, and that's where we're headed over the next couple episodes, some of uh, that stuff, getting to a little more in-depth with some of that. Uh, before we uh, close today, we, we like to ask, and I ask you this every episode over the next couple of weeks, but do you have anything that you just want to praise God for, a work of God that you want to uh, just uh, give, give praise for today?
1: Well, I, I would just, you know, kind of in general terms without telling my whole life story, um, I look back through my life, and there were times that were tough, you know. Many good times, too. Um, it is funny how now that I'm a little older, I have the perspective of, uh, of, of age, and I, I'm thankful for the good times and the bad times. Um, in, a, in one sense, I learned more from the bad times than the good times Um, when you're going through something difficult if you do continue to look to God and look into his word scripture comes alive to you and and you realize that God is walking with you through this he is controlling all of this and he does mean well for us and I, my experience, and I think many other people's experience who have gone through hard times, they, they, they become survivors. And they, they incorporate the experience in a healthy way. And, and many of them do end up saying, would I want to give up the knowledge I gained from, from that experience? Mm-hmm. And they say, I, I remember it was hard, but I wouldn't want to give up that knowledge. Because I, I learned something of God in the process. And I think that's what Job ultimately says about all of his, his um, sufferings along the way. Mm. So I, I just thank for the Lord for my own version of that. And I've talked to many people who have gone through some hard experience that was hard at the time. But I've heard, talked to them years after the fact. And the sharpness of the pain is over. They, they didn't turn their back on the Lord. They're still serving him. And, and actually... He's more of a he's their god he's the holy one to worship and yet he was the trusted confidant with you the whole way mm-hmm. and that's what we want to try to get people um, by god's grace to to see walk with them through that journey um, to try to help them without without just trying to wave a magic wand and make it better you you if you're like me you're you know you if we want to fix things mm-hmm. we'll, we'll, we'll identify a problem. Do two things, and the problem will be over. Solve it right away. With a lot of suffering issues, that's just not the way it's going to work.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for giving us the start of uh, of an introduction and study of Job, and we'll look forward to having you on in the future for a couple more episodes.
1: Okay, great. I look forward to it. Um, and thanks again for the invite.
0: Next time on the Central Seminary Podcast. God is transcendent, so you can't understand him. Just trust me then. <laughs> well, wait a second. Do you think we can learn anything about our theology and how we do theology from what we see them practicing?
1: So it's the ancient wisdom
0: idea. They're doing some things they probably shouldn't, and that's an area we need to be careful not to give false hope.
1: The, the old idea that many good theological truths need to be intention
0: how can we apply this maybe to some scenarios or specifics in our lives
1: and he seems to think that it
0: should explain the way God manages the world what are some of the best resources that come to mind that you've used or read retribution theology the idea that you inevitably reap what you sow and someone comes to us and say well I had this experience and and God told me or I better be careful but I promise people God will or will not do. For you. Look for our next episode on the Central Seminary podcast. Thanks for listening to the Central Seminary podcast. Our mission at Central Seminary is to assist New Testament churches in equipping spiritual leaders For Christ-Exalting Biblical Ministry Since its founding in 1956, Central Seminary has sought to provide serious students of God's Word with robust theological education as they prepare for ministry. We have many graduates around the world who are serving in countless ways to spread the Gospel and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Find out more at our website, centralseminary.edu